Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... Hey, Kara, we just saw Green Knight and also have watched Lord of the Rings recently. You want to talk about it? Sounds like a great idea. (laughs) I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane. So we saw the Green Knight and we both agreed that we hated it. (laughs) And then we came back to and we're like, maybe there's more here that we should think about. Which is maybe not a good endorsement for somebody to go see the Green Knight. I really want to talk about it. So The Green Knight, which came out this year in theaters and is probably still in theaters, directed by David Lowry, is based on the medieval poem by Unknown called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I don't know particularly how you say the guy's name, Gawain. I say Gawain, but maybe it's related to the name Gavin and you're supposed to say like Gawain. I got the sense in the movie that if you're British, you might say Gawain. Okay. And it sounds better, at least to my terrible American ears. I heard one or two people say like Garwin. They really sunk their teeth into it. Oh. Like they, they put some they put some spin on it. Before we get into it, we got a review on iTunes from NL Smith eighty eight, Kara. Uh, so I'm gonna read that now. A wonderful podcast that discusses tough topics and hot button issues in a very respectful way and with a Catholic perspective. I also enjoy the newer episodes sometimes discussing a movie or a book. I wish there were more podcasts like this one. Thank you, N.L. Smith. And we are delivering because we are discussing not just a movie, but a movie and a book and arguably an additional three movies and a book uh, because we're not just talking (laughs) about The Green Knight, but we're also going to compare and contrast it with Lord of the Rings. And the reason we're doing that is not just because we like Lord of the Rings and we're Catholic and we have to, but there are some similarities between these two stories and also they are linked by J.R.R. Tolkien. For those of you who don't know, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, being a linguist, actually studied the original story, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and translated it a couple of times. He did a popular translation that is commercially available, where he translated it into modern English. But he also did like a scholarly translation into like Middle English with notes. Yeah, so he's gone deep in the paint on the Green Knight. Carrie, do you think Tolkien would have liked this movie as a modern retelling of the legend? So I will caveat that I am no Tolkien expert, but I will say I saw the movie first and then I went and looked up more about the original poem. They took some pretty serious liberties Uh in this movie. (laughs) Everything from the character to the narrative, like it's loosely based on this thing. So I, my guess is that for both just historical precedents and the actual like message of this movie, neither seem to really be that close to the original. Yeah, this is a weird movie, y'all. <laughs> Spoilers ahead. We're just going to break it all down for you. If you don't go and see it, we won't be sad. <laughs> yeah, we are going to spoil this movie. It is pretty weird. It is not an action movie. It's not very mainstream. It's pretty artsy in spite of its rad trailer. I know. I really felt like that was kind of setting you up for something else. Yeah. (laughs) There are cool moments in this movie. It's very, very well filmed. It has beautiful vistas like our previous subjects, My Neighbor Totoro, which also has something to do with nature. This is not uh, in our rural family trilogy, but it definitely has a lot to say about nature. Um, But yeah, it's also uh, R-rated, which the original poem I don't think is. I think the original poem is, from what I understand, I've ordered the Tolkien translation. It hasn't come in yet. Maybe I'll report back on that later. But from what I understand, the original poem is quite a bit happier and merrier than the movie, which is pretty daggum dreary. The thing that was the most frustrating from the beginning is 
just the fact that I think that in the original Gowan, Gawain, I'm going to say Gawain, so we're both consistent. He is a knight and he's considered to be a chivalrous character mm-hmm. and he's at least somewhat of a idealized knight character, even though he, this is his sort of quest and his growth story. You know, he's somebody who is worth emulating or, you know, worth caring about. In the movie, he's like a total degenerate from the get-go. It's basically like he starts off the movie in a brothel. He's not a knight because he's like the only one who hasn't proved himself. And so this is where I'm starting to come around on like maybe I like this movie more than I originally thought. It is a bit of a journey movie in that he does kind of realize that he's been running away from the reality that we all have to face the tasks that are put in front of us, which, you know, I think we we can see some parallels there in Lord of the Rings, which we'll get to. But it's almost more of a modern take of a guy who's running away from responsibility because he yeah. basically spends, you know, the first half of the movie in a brothel and refusing to actually step up and do anything other than party. Yeah. This is not a good guy. This is not somebody that we care about. He is kind of like a bro, like kind of a frat bro a little bit. He feels oh, like man, a more absolutely. contemporary figure, which he is still in a medieval setting. This is, mm-hmm. it's stylized, but it's pretty faithful to a medieval setting. What we might imagine if King Arthur were real this might be what it looked like. So just by way of summary, this takes place in the wider Arthur legendarium. Uh, Sir Gawain in, in the poem and also in the movie is the nephew of King Arthur. He's a knight in the poem, but not in the movie. And the, the basic gist of the movie is that on Christmas, in the movie it's Christmas, in the poem it's, I think, New Year's Eve or New Year's, but it For them, it was still the octave of Christmas, so they were still celebrating Christmas. Uh, Fun fact, Christmas used to, uh, still does have an octave that goes from Christmas Day to New Year's Day, um, which is why we celebrate it as Christmas the whole time. Uh, Christmas doesn't end on December 25th. Anyway. Which is to say we should be partying more. Yeah, which they do in the poem (laughs) quite a lot from what I gather. Anyway, in the middle of this party, King Arthur's there, Sir Gawain's there, the Knights of the Round Table are there. And in the middle of this party, a green knight comes in and he challenges anybody to strike a blow against him. And then he's going to return the blow in a year and a day. And nobody wants to do it. Arthur's going to do it. And then Gawain steps up and says, no, I'll do it. And he cuts the knight's head off. The green knight picks up his head and then says, one year hence. And uh, rides away. And then... We basically flash forward to a year later where Gawain goes on a quest to meet the Knight's Challenge. He rides north, goes on some adventures, which are in the poem. They're something that happens off screen. And in the movie, they take up most of the movie. And he eventually makes it to the Green Chapel where the Knight rewarding him for his honesty about some of the adventures on the way and also his bravery just gives him a little nick on the neck and basically forgives him and compliments him for his bravery and his honorableness and Gawain returns safely that is much more ambiguous in the movie for one thing they don't ever say the name King Arthur or Guinevere even though they're both characters in the movie you see a round table but it doesn't necessarily register with you it's that it's the round table and a lot of the other big hallmarks of what you think of in King Arthur stories are present but they're not thrown in your face 
some of the weird things that happen in the movie version, a lady invents the daguerreotype photograph technique uh, about 700 years too early. Let's see. What other, what's some other, oh, there's a talking fox. Although that's in the, that's in the original too, I think. Oh, it's in the, okay. He also has, I think he has a fox friend is my understanding. But yeah, there's like this cameo by a bunch of roaming giants. Totally pointless. Uh, Unclear why they're there. Yeah. So I thought that was, that was really weird. This maybe is our first direct connection to Lord of the Rings. There's random giants in both Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit too. So yeah, like in, in this, in the Green Knight movie, there are just these giants including a giant baby that is being carried in the arms (laughs) of its like giant mother and they just walk by as Gawain is heading north and I think at one point he says let me ride on your shoulder and they just don't acknowledge it and they just keep going they just kind of look at him I'm so honestly the whole time I was like is this basically you guys spent a bunch of money on CGI that like (laughs) narratively you're like this doesn't make any sense but you felt they like you know the sunk cost fallacy, like they had to put a scene of it in because they spent all this money on the CGI or something. It made no sense. It had no point at all in this narrative. And there is a similar nonsensical appearance of giants in The Hobbit. As Bilbo and the dwarves are heading east, all was well until one day they met a thunderstorm. More than a thunderstorm, a thunder battle. Bilbo saw that across the valley the stone giants were out and were hurling rocks at one another for a game and catching them and tossing them down into the darkness where they smashed among the trees far below. They could hear the giants guffawing and shouting all over the mountainsides. And that's the last we hear about the stone giants in all of The (laughs) Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. Uh, (laughs) So uh, I don't know if uh, the director, David Lowry, just kind of wanted to get his hand on the ball with the nonsensical giants or what's going on there. If I'm being charitable, Kara, I think what this is supposed to accomplish is to show the main character that they live in a much larger world and that they are not necessarily the most important or greatest thing that's going on. I think that's clearer in The Hobbit because that's the whole point. Yeah. You know, Bilbo's is a funny little guy and Gandalf in the end says, you're only a little fellow in a wide world after all. I think it's spelled out there more. I think it's for a younger audience too, but um, I don't know if that's also the point here. It is part of a quest structure. I mean, you have mentioned before that, or at least when we when we were talking offline about how you know this is not just that Gawain has to show up for at the Green Chapel to find the Green Knight. He actually has to find the Green Chapel. And it's sort of vaguely off somewhere. He has to prepare himself for a journey. And I think we feel like, you know, Lord of the Rings, obviously for Frodo in particular, Frodo and Sam, it's a long quest and it's a long and winding road. And finding the way is, and sort of like how you deal with the adversity along the way is a big part of it. So I sort of felt that the like, okay, I'll at least buy that there are some things that are happening in this movie that are like just sort of showing you the fact that like the journey matters and like the journey is kind of what makes you. And I feel like that's the interesting thing that like upon further reflection of this movie is that, or it seems to care a lot more about the fact that this is a guy who needs a journey and he sort of needs to be broken. The journey itself doesn't break him. It's sort of his realization at the end, which I'll say like, that is like the crux of why this is a really rough movie. I think the journey through the wilderness is part of what appeals 
to Tolkien about this story, because it happens in both The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, too. Bilbo goes east on a quest through the wilderness, and Frodo goes south on a quest through the wilderness, and Gawain goes north on a quest through the wilderness. I think journeying through nature that is unspoiled is something that's kind of near and dear to Tolkien's heart. I think nature has an important role. I don't know how important a role it plays in the Gawain poem, but it does play an important role in the movie that we just saw Mm -hmm. in The Green Knight. I think there are some similarities and differences with how it's sort of commented on in Lord of the Rings, where for Tolkien, I think it's more what naturally exists versus industrial corruption. I think that that's kind of in broad strokes, the significance for Tolkien. You know, all that is good in the, and green in this world, it's creation. And he sort of sees industrialization as this rupture of creation. In the movie, The Green Knight, there's a little bit of that. Early in his journey Gawain comes across like a forest that has been chopped down that has been deforested which is is not in the legend that's that's a new addition but I I think that's supposed to maybe more subtly present the idea that man's presence in nature is sort of antagonistic and I think also that nature is antagonistic to humanity whereas I mean okay in Lord of the Rings yeah the trees the Ents are kind of antagonistic towards humanity but that's in response to being chopped down here in The Green Knight, I think it's it's not a response. Nature necessarily, by default, is sort of at cross-purposes with humanity. And then humanity also chops trees down, and that doesn't help. Well, it's interesting, too, that the Green Knight himself, in the poem, it's just like a green person. In the movie, he's very definitely tree-like. Yeah. And when Gowan shows up at the Green Chapel, the Green Knight is sort of almost like encrusted into his throne and sort of part of nature. This green chapel is essentially a nature sanctuary with a sort of vaguely church-like structure that doesn't have a roof or anything like that. So it's very, it feels a lot more like the green knight is supposed to be representative of a sort of nature spirit who is invincible of some kind. Yeah. And it's strongly implied that he sprouted up as a result of a curse performed by Morgan Le Fay. She's not called Morgan Le Fay in the movie, but she's King Arthur's stepsister. Uh, She's Gawain's mother in the movie. That's the nephew connection. I'm not sure if that's the same nephew connection as in the legend or if Gawain is from another side of Arthur's family than than Morgan Le Fay is. I I think that might be the case in the legend. Uh, But in the movie... Morgan Le Fay, the antagonistic witch, is Gawain's mother. But anyway, she is sort of behind setting the Green Knight against King Arthur's court. So the Green Knight sprouts up. You see her performing some sort of spell. You see a sprout pop up from the ground. And then the full adult Groot Green Knight comes in a couple of minutes later and issues his challenge. There's a tension between humanity and nature in the movie that I think does have some overlap with Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I mean, speaking of the mother slash Morgan Le Fay character, it's interesting, you know, later towards the end of the movie, I feel like this sort of emotional peak of the movie is him experiencing what in the, so in the poem, it's actually Morgan Le Fay. That is not 
really the case or clear in in the movie, but it's certainly like him facing the peak of his fears. Yeah. Like he knows that the next day he has to face the Green Knight and he has lost a belt that says, you know, if you're wearing this, no harm will come to you. He loses it along the way, has it stolen, and it's essentially returned to him by this sort of witch character at the end. This temptress who happens to look like his his on-again, off-again girlfriend. It's his moment, his like ultimate moment of temptation, and he gives into it. And you sort of see him redeem himself by making the choice at the end to take it off. And where, where I was kind of going with this about like, What's interesting to me with the overlap with Lord of the Rings is this kind of it, it all reminds me a lot of Frodo with the ring. Like he's on this quest and sort of as you come to the end, I mean Frodo basically can't throw the ring in the fire, right? Like he gets to the to the precipice and he makes the same error as Isildur. And in some ways, you know, I think that's what's interesting about the Green Knight is that he does before, like he. You see this whole scene. It's unclear at the time that he's like imagining what would happen if he goes back, having left the sash on, and essentially being let go by by the Green Knight. And he sees that essentially by taking the easy way out, his entire life is subject to ruin, and that the only way to sort of move forward is to live with integrity and take off this talisman and sort of face the consequences of the journey that he's been on which you know it's kind of interesting because in some ways like Frodo doesn't do it in the end you know ultimately like he gets forced into it by Gollum like biting off his finger yeah that's kind of what has been brewing in the back of my mind that I appreciate about this movie is that ultimately Gowan decides to face his fears and I feel like there's I don't know if this is like a Tolkien theme per se but I think there's certainly something about the desire in the human heart to make the right choice and to take on the burdens that are, you know, as we would say in Christianity, like to take up the crosses that we've been given. And in a way, this is sort of like a long, very long movie of a guy like trying not to take up his cross and realizing at the end that he can't avoid it whether he wants to or not. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, comparison between the belt, which is green, by the way, that he wears to protect himself and to avoid the fate that he has known for a year is coming to him. And the ring, on the other hand, which also can encircle the wearer in a, in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, they are definitely a threat to your own moral integrity but the reason they're a threat to your moral integrity is because of what they promise to do for you they promise mm -hmm. to make your will absolute this is definitely more the case with the ring but even with the green belt his will is to not die <laughs> and this will bring <laughs> yeah. it about and this is what he's struggling with throughout the whole movie probably more than the legend Gawain struggles with that in both cases they're definitely a form of temptation they're definitely sort of an external symbol of their own individual ego their will that in virtue they struggle against and i there's something weird with what the this movie is called the green knight it has a lot to say about the color green. It's weirdly mixed because the green knight represents death for this guy, right? And he's very unwilling. He, you know, he's questing towards it. He's going north, but he doesn't want to. And he's given lots of different escape hatches throughout. And he 
sometimes takes them, sometimes he almost takes them. And there's a tension between being great and going through with it and getting your head lopped off, like you lopped off the Green Knight's head. Which, by the way, I was like, what a stupid move. He just said he'll return the the nick, like give him a small chip on the shoulder. Yeah, or something. I know. <laughs> I right. Like, the whole time I'm like, what are you doing, man? The initial confrontation. Look, the Green Knight shows up. He's talking a big game. So I get that they are trying to cut him down to size. Sorry, I, pun partially Literally. intended. Yeah. But yeah, you don't have to cut off the guy's head if you if he says he's going to get you back. He's made of tree. He, you don't necessarily know he functions with the same biology as a human being. You don't know that if you cut his head off, he's going to die. Whereas you know that will kill you. Um, and hence, sure. hence Gawain's problem. <laughs> So Green serves as sort of a memento mori, which I think is actually a good message because people are kind of unwilling to confront death, um, which is what this movie is largely about. But it's not just a good death in the Christian sense, like a death in Christ. It's a negation of all things human because of something that the, in the legend, her name is Lady Bertilac, the temptress near the end. She talks about red and green when she gives him back the green belt, which we don't know how she got it, but... She gives it back to him. So she says, red is the color of lust, but green is what lust leaves behind. In heart, in womb, green is what is left when ardor fades, when passion dies, when we die too. When you go, your footprints will fill with grass. Moss shall cover your tombstone. And as the sun rises, green shall spread over all, in all its shades and hues. The verdigree will overtake your swords and your coins and your battlements, and try as you might, all you hold dear will succumb to it. Your skin, your bones, your virtue. So that's a lot. What? She's setting up kind of a symbolic opposition between red, which she introduces as lust, but she sort of packs in more and more things under that umbrella, including virtue, which is not lust. Yeah. So I think it's just all human things, good and bad, versus, on the other hand, indifferent nature which is going to be there when you're gone. So, yeah, that's the difficulty that the Green Knight poses, that he's he's death, but he's indifferent death. Do you think it's pointless death or just he's indiscriminate in dealing out death? I think he turns out the actual Green Knight, not as a symbolic figure, but the character, turns out to not be indifferent or pointless. He rewards Gawain at the very end. He cares about him. He's nice to him. He respects Gawain's decision, which he's reached after great difficulty to go through with it. And believe me, if you haven't seen the movie, great difficulty. We get taken through <laughs> multiple false starts, uh, lots of hemming and hawing, and we never actually get to see his head chopped off. I was reading that the director specifically left it ambiguous as to, you know, what does the Green Knight actually do with Gawain at the end? Yeah, how did you read that? What do you what do you think the Green Knight actually does? Here's the thing I've been struggling with. I don't know what he does. I tend to advocate for more ambiguity and fewer movies that have like obvious happy endings. There's something interesting about dealing with the tension of the unknown. And maybe this is my like more morbid memento mori type, but like we don't know our ultimate judgment. You know, we try to live our lives in Christ and we don't know what anybody else's judgment is. And so I feel like like having a bit of a sense of Gowan at the end, it doesn't does it matter in a way if he actually gets saved or not. What matters is that he did the the truly honorable thing by saying, I'm not going to hide behind 
the shield and I finally, you know, he has his conversion and the fact of the conversion is the thing that really matters. You see him play out in his mind. You don't know it's in his mind at the time. You think it's actually happening in the narrative, but it turns out it's just him, his imagination. You see him play out. What What if he takes the easy way out and he runs away from the Green Knight and he goes back and everything he wants comes true and happens. And at the end of all that, even if he wears the green belt throughout his whole life, he's still going to die. And in fact, his desire to live and get everything he wants in life is going to result in his death, which is why in the vision you see him wounded as king, somehow Arthur's successor in his little vision. You see him wounded and he pulls the green belt out of the wound. And as he's pulling the green belt, that motion is duplicated in his head being severed uh, as if it's one action his desire his like clinging to life is going to be his downfall anyway Mm -hmm. so either way he's gonna die it's not about whether or not you die it's how you meet death and i think that's what the green knight commends him for at the end so no i don't think the green knight is what lady bertilak is saying green is i think he's more more just than that or more merciful maybe so you think he doesn't kill him i think what we see at the very end is the end of the interaction where Gawain is there he said okay i'm ready and this time he really means it and the green knight can tell and he sort of kneels down to Gawain, and he he says something like well done my brave knight and now off with your head and he just sort of flicks him in the neck which i think reflects more how the poem goes i think that is a reward and metaphorically he does get his head cut off because he accepts it because he he embraces it he's cool that he's cool not cool but he he, he is willing to allow it to happen in a way that he wasn't the whole rest of the story leading up to this. Yeah, definitely. Circling back to that sort of embracing of the cross reality. I feel like that's half of our battle as Christians is like accepting the crosses that come to us, accepting the grace of God to pick them up. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's not our job to try and rid ourselves of them. I mean, you know, there are certain practical things where it's like you don't have to suffer through things that have an obvious solution to them. <laughs> I'm all for, you know, like going to therapy and like getting yourself out of a toxic relationship, you know, things like that. <laughs> right. Like let's not let's not uh conflate that, but you know, there are there are things that we, you know, crosses that we receive that we are asked to bear. And half of the time, the struggle is just picking it up and being like, yes, this is my lot in life. Maybe I'm feeling reflective of this. I, you know, I'm pregnant and thinking about like the difficulties of childbirth. And, you know, I've got friends who are homeschooling with the pandemic and stuff. And it's like, yeah, you don't get to like shirk those responsibilities. Like that is the cross of the joy of having a family. And so I feel like it's an interesting sort of illustration of, of that fact and I also kind of like just the idea in a contemporary way that I feel like the director is sort of making a countercultural point that a lot of what we seek today is sort of temporal pleasure. And it seems as though this movie is saying, like, ultimately, that is not what is fulfilling, that, you know, this integrity or the ability to go on the quest and to meet the challenge is an important part of being human. Yeah, it's a, it's a really weird, quirky, roundabout way of saying, here we have no lasting city, which you gotta commend him for that, strangely. 
it's a, it's a weird it's a weird frolic to get to that point but yeah <laughs> i think your experience was the same as mine that is not how i felt while watching the movie no no definitely <laughs> i know we both walked out of that and we're like what just happened there there's a house on fire at the very beginning of the movie never explained <laughs> it just is merlin has some face tattoos they never call him Merlin, but he's the he's the mystical one in Arthur's court. Oh, I totally missed that. Yeah, he's not wearing a hat either. That's probably why. I was like, who's this dude? Also, Dev Patel is good in this he's, movie. Like, I generally like him as an actor. Yeah. Yeah, he, embody, he embodies like an old school vibe pretty well, like Middle Ages. Yeah. Okay, Kara, hit me with your Boromir take. So, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight is as if the Fellowship of the Ring was about Boromir. Like, Boromir is the main character. And you just watched two plus hours of Boromir being not a great guy. He has his conversion moment, and then he dies. That is a hot take, and I love it. I never considered that before. Yeah, especially movie Gawain. I don't know if book poem Gawain is the same, but movie Gawain definitely feels like that. You know what this is? <laughs> Got it. Yeah, because they have the same ego struggles. The movie Gawain yeah. and Boromir have the same kind of problem. They both want to be great. They're definitely going to die, though. <laughs> Which Boromir kind of sees coming when he says one does not simply walk into Mordor. He thinks the quest mm -hmm. is folly. And then he just sort of puts that thought on the back burner until he dies. Yeah, Boromir, I think you're right. It's interesting, kind of, you know, the ring as like a sort of analogy with, with the belt in the Sir Gawain story. It's interesting because they both see the power and they don't see the downside. You know, yeah. Boromir has a hard time. I mean, he's the one who's constantly like, we should use the ring. And it's Aragorn who has to be like, no, you don't use the ring. Like it has another purpose that you can't control. And I feel a little bit like that, that his kind of that ending scene with Gawain basically seeing his future if he uses the belts to avoid having his head cut off, seeing that in the end, the belt is sort of his downfall and ultimately results in the opposite of what you want. Boromir up until the end has the exact same struggle. Like he always wants the ring from Frodo and is constantly tempted by it. And it's kind of not until the very end that he realizes like Frodo needs to get away from him and that he like sort of steps up to defend the other hobbits and and is like does the chivalrous thing. This is sort of why I keep coming back to me like maybe this is a more interesting movie than I thought. You know, I think that there's something about the modern predicament and sort of feeling like more money, not to be like anti-consumerist, but, you know, sometimes we can sort of put our faith in talisman, for lack of a better term here, to make life better or yeah, to sort definitely. of fantasize your way into like, if only I had this, I could win or, you know, have a better life or whatever. That, that's what leads to rampant, unfettered consumerism is it's always the mm. next thing. I got the thing yeah. I thought was going to be the thing, but now I got to get the next thing and the next thing. Yeah. It's always that green belt. The belt is greener on the other side. There we go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Episode over. Done. <laughs> <laughs> and scene. Each of the adventures... Uh, in the middle of the movie, or misadventures probably, because he's not really successful very often, they sort of force him to confront the prospect of death and to struggle against 
that. And in the middle, one thing that may be more relevant to our purposes is he meets St. Winifred. Oh, that's right. I totally forgot about that. Semi-historical, but real St. Winifred. Because this is where, especially like the notion of death by beheading is particularly notable. Because he meets St. Winifred after she has died. And he asks her, this is kind of the weird vibe of the movie. He asks her, my lady, are you real or are you a spirit? And her answer, of course, is what is the difference? I just need my head. Oh, of course. I'm sorry I asked. She is actually a spirit or ghost or something. And her corpse has been separated from her skull. Um, and in the logic of this movie, they need to be reunited. So uh, she she quests Gawain to go get her head and reunite it with the rest of her body. But it's still not a pleasant task because he has to like go to the bottom of the pond and get the skull where it is and risk drowning. I did look up that that is apparently the story of St. Winifred, that she was beheaded but kept her own head and didn't die. <laughs> I feel like she might be one of those saints where we're like, maybe this didn't quite happen like it was said. But Right, but but there's, there's something in there because the story of St. Winifred in a nutshell is that her suitor was enraged when she decided she wanted to become a nun and her suitor... Gotta say, this is, she's not the first woman to have something like this happen. No. I gotta say, I don't really understand. It's the same difference to you if she's a nun or if she's dead. What is that male rage. <laughs> it's not rational. According to this, Winifred's head was subsequently rejoined to her body due to the efforts of St. Buno, uh, who I've never heard of, and she was restored to life. So that is probably the more legendary side of the story. In the, in the movie, Gawain takes the place of St. Buno. So there's a run-in with a saint, and she's relatively faithful to the existing information about her and not sanitized for a secular audience. So next time somebody asks you if you're dead or alive, the the correct response is, what difference does it make? (laughs) Our souls are eternal, Andrew. That's the real important part. Well, that's the sort of happy indifference uh, and detachment from earthly life that Gawain does not understand at that point, um, because he is very attached to his life and what he wants to get out of life and becoming great. Well, and also the pleasures of said life. Yeah. I will say it's interesting that in his sort of imagination future, he does basically go back and kind of like, even though he ends up becoming king, he goes back to being like semi-degenerate again, at least for a short period of time. Oh, yeah. Because in the vision, he has a child with his concubine girlfriend, then puts her away, takes the child and marries some noblewoman. In the vision, he's certainly not virtuous. Oh, I should have mentioned this earlier. I know that this talking fox is in the original poem. But what is the point of the talking fox? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything about Reynard the fox. I don't know the role he has to play in the poem. Maybe it, maybe it'll be cool. I think in the poem he's like a cameo from an existing other medieval story. Oh, so it's sort of like a MCU yeah. random character showing up in another movie. So in this movie, I don't know because it's not explained. This fox just follows him and doesn't talk for most of the movie, and then suddenly talks for like two minutes and tells him to go back. You know, save yourself, don't die. I kind of got the sense that it was his mother, the witch, Mm. talking through the fox. That makes sense. And she's sort of using the fox as like a chaperone. But I'm not sure about that because it's kind of ambiguous. Well, aren't foxes often, you know, they're considered to be cunning and Mm -hmm. sort of symbolically like mischievous or lead you astray? 
which is yeah. interesting if that would be oh. the sort of characterization that the fox would be like, go back, run away from the obligation that you have here, which is. Okay. That's, I, I like that reading of it, that this is an unreliable advisor. You know, I also wonder, thinking about, like, if it is from his mom, it's kind of interesting in this telling that, like, she's the one who creates the challenge by creating the Green Knight, sort of seemingly to force Gawain to, like, become a better man. But at the same time, she also is the one who gives him the temptation of the belt. Do you think that she anticipated Gawain being the one to accept the Green Knight's challenge? Or if she Mm -hmm. thought Arthur or one of the other knights was going to do it? That is a good question. Again, in the movie, it's ambiguous. And in the poem, Gawain and Morgan Le Fay are not related. So she doesn't care if he dies in the poem. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good, that's a good question. It's unclear. I'm trying to remember. It's sort of a... Pulling the ripcord on the whole scheme. Yeah. I don't know. Also, like, some some folly of, like, dabbling in, in witchcraft and attempting to, like, control the future. It would have been clearer if her performance had a little bit more surprise or this isn't working out the way I planned. Yeah. I didn't get that sense from her performance. She's very even keeled throughout. Yeah. Semi-omniscient yeah. sorceress. But if she's got to rely on foxes for her intel, she can't be omniscient. (laughs) I mean, maybe they're on the same side, you know. Maybe he's more reliable for her. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) During the movie, I guess I don't know that much about King Arthur. And, like, obviously Morgan Le Fay being a sorceress is part of it. It's like a sort of Christian world, but there's also these magical pagan elements. I'm unclear as to like how virtuous King Arthur really is. He seems a little stupid in this movie. Yeah, he's he's sort of iffy, which one cool thing, I don't know, like you said, how often this theme comes across in Arthurian literature. Where I experienced it was in the C.S. Lewis novel, That Hideous Strength, where there's a lot of commentary on like Arthur and Merlin being on sort of the threshold between British paganism and Christianity. And there's like an uneasy relationship between the two because Merlin is a pagan sorcerer who is ruled over by a Christian king. I think that uneasiness, those are the only two places I've seen it come across, which were that book, That Hideous Strength, and this movie. But it's an interesting kind of window in time, because normally one just displaces the other. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that, you know, you've got this sorceress mentioning going to mass as Mm -hmm. if not a big deal. But she's also like the king's sister, and she has no expectation of like attending Christmas mass. But yeah, Arthur and the other big names who are not named here, but you know, Guinevere Merlin, they have very ambiguous presences in this movie. They're not larger than life, but I think the director knows that these characters are larger than life to you and me. So I don't know. It's, it's sort of like meeting your hero a little bit. Not that I have a particular attachment to these people, but this person has been larger than life and suddenly you see them bite their nails. Yeah, they're very down-to-earth characters. Yeah. Arthur is old and maybe a little feeble because he doesn't realize that Gawain is like a total degenerate, not a guy that you should be trusting to do anything. Yeah, he's just kind of blinded by nepotism. Yeah. Our time on this mortal coil is up and this episode has to face the Green Knight, so we should be off to the Green Chapel. We will see. (laughs) We'll be back. We're presuming on the Green Knight's mercy. We'll be back to talk uh, more (laughs) about Lord of the Rings next time. Next time we'll be talking about a far less ambiguous topic and 
far more far more enjoyable i can yeah. i can recommend more wholeheartedly <laughs> so if if you're fed up with ambiguity don't worry help is on the way <laughs> we'll be at the house of elrond where there's good clean narrative fun although not not allegory to to be sure we got to resist the temptation to allegorize lord of the rings this is not an allegory tolkien was very clear about that we will respect his wishes <laughs> still gonna be a lot clearer than this so we will see you next time thanks for joining us kara thanks for having me please share this episode with your friends leave us a review on itunes and subscribe for free wherever you find your podcasts bye now and god love you